0: If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we are going to be examining verses 1 through 7, and I'd like to tell you that that I went and and thought about the scripture reading. I didn't even think about that, but it ties in just right. Uh, Paul and Timmy both reading from 1 Peter chapter 2 leads us right into this text. The flow continues, and we're going to be talking about some of that in the contextual flow, but it just ties in just exactly where we're heading this morning. Uh, with chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you weren't here with us last week, uh, we had two sermons and, and we talked about the forgotten commandment Sunday morning, about withdrawing fellowship and, and, and how that process is to, is to happen. We emphasize that we are not to count them as enemies, but our brothers and sisters who fall away and become unfaithful, that we admonish them as a brother, that we love them and want them to come back home. And then Sunday evening from Luke 15, we talked about the value of one soul. And the three parables that Jesus taught. Again, talking about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost soul. And really the two lost souls because the younger brother who was lost, but also the older brother who had the wrong mentality when one came back home. And so we're going to continue this theme, this thought of our mindset when we are striving to live faithful, but when a loved one decides not to. This is an emotional topic, uh, but it's also a biblical topic. And if it's a biblical topic, I have a duty to preach it. And that's what I plan on doing this morning, is working through this text with you. I say it's an emotional topic because I know of several who are married to someone who is not a Christian. Married to someone who's not faithful. Maybe they were at one point, and then they become unfaithful. What do you do in that situation? This hits home with me. I grew up in a a home like that. Uh, Some of you may be able to attest to that. I've got several family members Uh, who at one point in time both were faithful, but one decided, I'm I'm not going to be faithful anymore. So what do you do? What do you do when the person that you love so much, your own spouse, decides to leave the Lord? Or what do you do when your spouse who says, I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to obey, I'm going to come, and they don't? What do you do? And that's what this sermon is about, and that's what this text addresses. And hopefully we'll be encouraged by this, Hopefully, we'll be able to increase our knowledge of what we are to do in this situation, and ultimately, hopefully, we can glorify God by going to His Word. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, I've entitled the sermon, Heirs Together of the Grace of Life. Lord willing, I'll be preaching two weddings this month. I've got one coming up next Saturday and then on the 28th. Uh, One is from a childhood friend and the other, uh, my cousin. And so that's one of the blessings of being a minister, is you're able to do Uh, several things and and be a part of that joyous occasion. And so I've been thinking a lot about premarital counseling and been doing a lot of study on marriage, and so this kind of flows with that thought. But think of the beauty of that phrase. Heirs together of the grace of life. That's the way that God designed marriage to be. That you're sharing this life. You're sharing the experiences of life, the ups and the downs, the ebb and the flow that comes with life. You're sharing that with someone. And you chose that individual that you're married to. You're the one that I want to share this life with. But ultimately, you're the one that I want to be in heaven with forever. And it doesn't get any deeper than that. And so those thoughts in mind, let's think about the impact of this text. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. A very simple outline this morning. If you have your bulletin, you've got the notes in front of you. And I hope and pray that you'll be able to fill that out and take it home and study it. For yourself for a deeper dive but we're gonna first look at the expectation what does God expect uh, when you have a spouse that's not a Christian or a spouse that becomes unfaithful second we're gonna look at the example there are several examples from the Old Testament but specifically one example that Peter by the Holy Spirit brings out for us today and then third and finally we're gonna notice the eternal importance of dwelling together with understanding of having this knowledge that we are to be together as husband and wife and we are to ultimately be in heaven together one day and the importance of doing that together. Let's begin by reading through this text. I know this afternoon we'll be reading it again, uh, but there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing else. It'll help reiterate some of these things. But we're going to begin in 1 Peter 3 and verse 1. I'm reading from the New King James Version this morning. Wives... with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. As we work through this, we're going to take the same approach that we took last week. We're going to dive into this word by word, phrase by phrase, so we can bring out what the text is saying and then bring it into our lives and then put it into practice. So first, as we think about the expectation, we cap out here in verses 1 and 2. And you'll notice right off the bat, you see the word likewise. What does that force us to do as Bible students? He's comparing this to something. So when we go back in the context, what we just read this morning, the whole context of 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3 is about submission, submission. Be submissive. So when he says wives likewise be submissive, he's comparing that to submission in another area. So when you go back to verses 13 through 17 of 1 Peter chapter 2, that's submission to government, that's what Paul read for us earlier. Fear God, honor the brotherhood, fear the king. Those statements, he's he's saying this is how you are to live as a Christian as you submit to government. Then you have slaves submitting to masters. In the first century context, this is something that was very important because if you're a Christian and you have a master who's not treating you properly, what are you to do? Still be submissive and carry yourself in such a way that they'll see that. They'll see your integrity and your character and glorify God because of that. And then, of course, he gives the greatest example, and that's Jesus, who was reviled. He reviled not again. He, he knew no sin. There was no guile on his mouth. But what did Jesus do? He submitted to his Father. So Peter, in building on this point of submission, says, Wives, likewise, you be submissive. So keep that thought in mind. The overall context here is about submission. We can compare this language, of course, to Ephesians 5.22 and Colossians 3.18. So if you'd like to mark in your Bible, there's a a place in the the margin. You can put those two references right here with 1 Peter 3.1. Because the Apostle Paul is going to emphasize the same thing, isn't he? Wives, you be submissive to your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. That's Ephesians 5. Colossians 3.18 through verse 21 is how the home is designed. Wives, you be submissive to your husbands. Husbands, you be the leader. Children, obey your parents for this is right. And so it's the home as God designed it. And here we compare that thought uh, with 1 Peter 3 and verse 1. Notice that word submissive. It means to be or become inclined or willing to submit to authority. Now, in our world and our society today, that, that might go in one ear and out the other, right? People, as soon as you say that, someone says, well, well, we're on, we're on level ground, we're equal. That's not right to say somebody's better. And that's not what the Bible teaches the Bible does not degrade women. The Bible elevates women like no other book in the world. And so those who say that it's putting women down haven't read their Bible, unfortunately. The Bible emphasizes. read Proverbs 31 as if that's not the case. And think about the examples that we're about to find here, like Sarah here in just a moment. So the point is that men and women are equal in value, but God designed, and God has determined, that the man is to be the leader in the home the man is to be the leader in the marriage relationship and so wives then are to be submissive to their own husbands and so if you'd like to have some verses that emphasize it think first about equality God made man in his own image in the image of God did he make man male and female he created them it was not good for man to be alone so what did he do he made a helper comparable to him And so when Adam is sleeping he takes one of the ribs and there's woman so, as a woman, you have a soul. As a man, you have a soul. You're on equal ground in your intrinsic value to God. It's not a question of, of value, right? You're valuable. Galatians chapter 3, will emphasize later. Galatians 3, 26 through 28. Male or female, we are all one in Christ Jesus. All say the same way, and all have that hope of heaven together. Regardless if you're male or female. But, when it comes to headship, the Bible's very clear that the man is the head of the wife. The man is the head in the relationship. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, as well as verses 8 and 9. And So again, I'd like for you to have that, those verses, and be able to have those and study those as we think about it. So the expectation is for wives to be submissive to your own husbands. And notice the next phrase, that even if some do not obey the word, literally, if you're married to someone and they refuse to become a Christian, they decide... Yeah, I'm going to do it. I'll come to church with you. I'll study the Bible with you. But then they don't. So what's the expectation for the wife? Is the wife to say, well, they won't do it, so I'm I'm leaving. No. You be submissive to them. And you stay with them. And you work through it together. And Peter's going to say, here's how you handle this situation. Here's how you go about your Christian life and your duty as a wife to your husband. Notice the phrase, even if some do not obey the word literally, if some do not want to become a Christian. Guy Woods emphasizes in his commentary, not to allow oneself to be persuaded. It's as if the, the heart of your spouse is hardened over time. Can that be painful? When the person you love the most, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, year after year after year, keep saying, I'll come with you, I'll study with you, and they don't. And you leave and you come here with your spiritual family, and you're encouraged and you're uplifted, but then you go back home, and you want your spouse to be here so bad, but they're not. That's not the way that God designed it. As we read in this text, you're heirs together of the grace of life. You are to be together, especially in the Lord. But we understand sometimes that doesn't happen. So again, what is the expectation? Let's continue in the text, and I want to keep the verses in blue at the top so we can keep referring back to it. Notice that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Does, is Peter saying that you don't need the word of God to be saved? The same Peter that wrote, you're born again not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible by the word of God, 1 Peter 1, 22 and following? Of course not. This is not a contradiction. You'll notice the language without a word is emphasizing that you're not having to use all these persuasive words to win over your spouse. What's really going to win them is seeing you live out your Christian life. Seeing that example day after day. Every Sunday morning. I know where my wife's going to be this morning. Wednesday night at 7 o'clock? Oh yeah, she's a Bible study. I see my my spouse reading their Bible. I see my spouse calling people and checking on them and visiting the hospital and evangelizing. I see my spouse living out the Christian life. That's going to have more impact on them. Then if you say over and over and over and over again. Why won't you just come? Why won't you pick up your Bible? Why won't you study? So Peter's emphasizing that even without a word, you don't have to use all these big words of persuasion to win them, but more importantly, if you'll live the Christian life, live out your Christianity, your conduct and your way of life is going to impact them in a positive way. So notice from James 1.21, there's another verse to, to remind us. Nobody's saved without the Word of God. Nobody. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, Acts 4.12. So it's the gospel of Christ that saves. That's God's power unto salvation, Romans 1.16. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, Psalm 19.7. And then James 1.21 says you've got to receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. So Peter's not saying that they can be one without the Word of God but what's going to help them have their hearts softened by seeing their spouse live out their Christian walk that's going to help them to say you know what this is real to them this is genuine maybe I need to look into this a little bit more instead of hearing and, and, and nagging over and over again that's actually going to cause the heart to be more hardened and more calloused and that's not the goal the goal is to win them as Peter's going to emphasize here in just a moment You'll notice that I put up here that the King James is misleading. And the the reason I say that is because here we have the definite article, the, without the word. But that's not teaching that someone is saved without the word of God. And again, we need to emphasize that. The New King James, as well as the New American Standard, emphasizes without a word. It's exhortation and persuasive words used by the wives. You don't need to do all that. Does that say, you don't come up and say, "I, I wish you'd come with me this morning. No, keep doing that. Does that mean you don't say, hey, I'm, I'm on my way to worship? No, it's not the point. The point is you don't keep over and over and over again because then it's going to create this mentality of, well, I'm, I'm not going. I'm not doing that. Because they won't stop talking about it. Or the flip side, okay, fine, I'll go. If that's the mentality, it's not going to help. It's going to help they're here to hear the truth, but at the same point in time, if they're just coming to appease you so you'll stop bringing it up, that's not the goal. That's not the goal. Peter is emphasizing they may be won. They may be converted because of the way you're living your life, because of the way you're carrying out Christianity. Brother Wood said, This is an instance when silent eloquence is more effective than vigorous debate. That's a great way to put that, isn't it? Silent eloquence is Sunday morning... I know when I'm getting ready and I'm going to worship. Wednesday night, no matter how long of a day I had at work, if, if I'm able to, Lord willing, I'm going to be there. I'm going to assemble with the saints. I'm going to be there every opportunity I have. And my spouse needs to know that. But what happens on Sunday evening when my spouse is not a Christian comes to me and says, are you not going to worship tonight? No, I've got to work tomorrow. No, I went this morning. I'm pretty tired. What kind of negative impact is that going to have on your spouse who's not a Christian? Well, it must not be that important to them. Why should I go? So never underestimate the power of your faithful Christian example. That's the point of verses 1 and 2. That's the expectation for wives who are married to someone who's not a Christian or they become unfaithful. You keep on keeping on. You be faithful to God, and you keep setting that good example, and you never know, you never know. It might take a very long time, and this afternoon, Lord willing, I've got some real-life examples I want to share with you. Just take a few moments to to read them, hopefully encourage you. This this can happen. People can can change, and it may take a very, very, very long time, but don't give up. Keep being faithful to God. We continue thinking about the expectation. We're still in verses 1 and 2. Notice that if even some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won. The word won there carries the idea of may be converted and may be persuaded to change their course of action. And then we notice the how and the when. May be won how by the conduct of their wives. King James says your conversation, that's just simply your way of life. So again, you're living out your Christianity, and they see that. And when will this happen? When they observe. The word observe means to follow with the eyes and with the mind. So we might say with the eyes and with the mind's eye. And Paul just read this for us earlier, 1 Peter 2.12. He says, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they observe your good works, they may glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the same word in 1 Peter 2.12 as it's right here. So your spouse, who's not a Christian, your spouse who's not faithful to the Lord, they're going to see, they're going to observe. They are watching you. And they're watching to determine whether or not Christianity is real for you or not. Are you just going through the motions? Are you just going to say you went? Or are you going because you love God? and you love God's people and you understand the importance of assembling together to be encouraged and to encourage others that's what they need to see and over time that's genuine and that's real and they'll see that and again the point is that might be able to win them over when they observe what exactly notice your chaste conduct accompanied by fear the word chaste means pure or faultless It's only found three times in the New Testament once here, and then Paul's going to bring it out. 2 Corinthians as well as uh, Titus chapter 2 and verse 5. Your conduct, your manner of acting, and the way you control yourself. This is really interesting. I looked up the word conduct. Thirteen times in the New Testament, in eight of the thirteen, Peter uses that word. To me, that jumps off the page because Peter understood the importance of living it out, didn't he? You talk about someone who had the ups and downs of life. Peter, who was on the mountaintop, yes, Jesus, you are the Son of God. Lord, to whom shall we go? All those mountain peaks of Peter's life, but he was also in the valley, wasn't he? when he denied Jesus those three times. So Peter knew the importance of living this out. And Peter was a married man. And he understood the responsibility as a godly husband, as a godly man, to live this out every single day and to be that example. So Peter writes a lot about conduct. He writes a lot about how you are to live your life. Notice your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. The word fear, phobos, is reverence or great respect. Reverence, number one, for God. Great respect for God, but also for a wife who's married to a, a man who's not a Christian, also having that respect for him. Because you recognize in the marriage relationship, he's still the head of the household. He's still my husband. And I am to be submissive to him, but listen to me, out of love. Your first submission is to God. God is the one you submit to. If my spouse is trying to get me to leave the Lord, I'm not leaving the Lord. I'm going to stay faithful to God no matter what. And hopefully by that determination, by that courage, by that commitment, my spouse who's not a Christian might say, you know what, this is real for them. This is genuine for them. I think I'm going to look into it a little bit more. That's the expectation that we have. Before we leave this first point, I want to ask you to leave 1 Peter and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here the Apostle Paul is emphasizing principles of marriage, but this is really important for us to grasp as we think about the fact that there are still husband and wife duties that are to be carried out. It's still important that you live together, you dwell together, uh, even if one of, of... Uh, Even if your spouse decides not to be a Christian or to become unfaithful. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning there in verse 10. Paul says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him let him not divorce her and a woman who has a husband who does not believe if he is willing to live with her let her not divorce him for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband In other words it's still a marriage in the eyes of God it's still a marriage and there's still duties to be carried out otherwise your children will be unclean but now they're holy verse 15 But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Again, if my spouse is trying to get me to leave the Lord and say, you keep doing this Christianity thing and I'm gone, you stay faithful to God. You continue to be a Christian. And here we see in verse 16, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, oh husband, whether you will save your wife? You stay together. stay committed to each other. Because you were married. And you did this in the sight of God. Your marriage is, is, is bound by heaven. Stay faithful to one another. But most importantly, you stay faithful to God. And that's the expectation that Peter emphasizes in verses 1 and 2. In the second place this morning, let's notice... The example. We're staying, we're going back to our text in 1 Peter chapter 3, and this is verses 3 through 6. And here Peter's gonna transition as he talks to wives, as they are submissive to their own husbands. And here he emphasizes the inward person, the beauty on the inside. Notice that he says, don't let your beauty just be outward, but more so let it be inward. Again, is Peter saying that it's wrong for a woman to to do her hair a certain way? Is it wrong for a woman to wear gold, wear earrings? Is it wrong? Is is that what Peter's saying or is there something deeper here? Notice what he's emphasizing. He says, don't let it merely be outward. Don't just focus on the outward appearance. But more so, focus on the inward beauty that you are to have. Here's an example. John chapter 6 and verse 27. Jesus says, do not labor for the food which perishes but for the food which endures to everlasting life. So is Jesus saying you don't need to work for your food? No. What's the point? Don't just labor for that. But even more so, labor for the food which endures to eternal life. Don't just focus on the physical, what he's saying. Focus even more so on the spiritual. The outward appearance, be presentable. We understand that. It's a very practical thing. But put more emphasis on the inward Let it be the hidden person of the heart, Peter emphasizes. That's what God is looking for. So continuing to think about this, notice the phrase, the hidden person of the heart, one with a gentle and quiet spirit. This is very precious in the sight of God. That's the kind of beauty that God is looking for. And we've heard that phrase, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Well, apply that with God. What kind of beauty is God looking for? He's looking for that Gentle, that quiet, submissive spirit from a godly woman who is submitting to her husband because she's submitting to God. That's what God is looking for, and that's what God holds highly. Notice the word precious is found 16 times in the New Testament. This is the only time this word is used. I find that really, really interesting. That the Holy Spirit, through Peter, decided to use this word one time for this one occasion to bring out this one point. This kind of lifestyle, this kind of beauty is high priced and extremely valuable. That's what the word means in the original. What's that remind us of? Proverbs 31 Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is what? Far above rubies. Beauty is is passing, charm is deceitful, but a woman who loves the Lord, she shall be praised. You work through Proverbs thirty one, and what's the emphasis? Yes, there's the outward. Yes, she's a hard worker. Yes, she cares for her children. Yes, she loves her husband. But more importantly, it's the inward person that's so beautiful and precious about the virtuous wife of Proverbs thirty one. That's what God's looking for. And so again, we're talking about what do you do in the marriage relationship if your spouse is not a Christian or they become unfaithful? You you have this submissive attitude, this gentle, quiet attitude that you're going to be submissive to your husband, you're still going to treat them with great respect, but you're also not going to compromise your faith in God. You're going to be able to stay faithful to God and hopefully encourage your spouse to come around. So as we think about the example, notice he's going to talk about the holy women of old. What did they do? The holy women trusted in God and exhibited the proper behavior. Titus chapter 2, Paul uh, writing to Titus, he says, Tell the older women to teach the younger women. Here's how you are to be. Here's how you are to be at home. This is your nest. This is your environment. Nobody can make a home like a wife and a mother. They've got the touch. They've got the magic touch to be able to bring that warm, welcoming environment. How they are to bring their children up. How they are to treat their husbands. He said, you got to teach. The older have to teach the younger. And they can keep this going. But as you think about this language, what's so powerful is that in the Old Testament, you look at these women, and yes, there's, there's phrases that we talk about their physical beauty. Sarah, of course, name means princess. Sarai, princess. Sarah, the queen. You think about the beauty, the outward beauty that they had. But what is Peter emphasizing? The inward beauty. He said the holy women of old, here's how they adorned themselves. They had this gentle, this quiet, this submissive spirit. And that's what's beautiful in the sight of God. The example, if you have it in your Bible, you'll notice in the, in the margin... Genesis 18, 12, is the Old Testament reference to Sarah. Sarah called Abraham Lord. What's interesting is the context of Genesis 18. Remember, that's when Sarah laughed. You're going to have a son, and Sarah laughed. She said, no, I didn't. Lord said, yeah, you did. But Abraham there, she calls him Lord. Even in a moment like that, she didn't say, well, my husband's an old man, and there's no way this is possible. She said, no, my Lord, being old. And I find that powerful, even in a moment like that. The respect that she had for Abraham. Have you ever thought about what Sarah had to go through as a wife? I'm taking Isaac. I'm going to be gone. I'm going to the mountain to worship. We'll come back. Hey, honey, uh, pick everything up. We've got to go. We've got to leave. Where? I don't know. never been there, but the Lord said go. You ever thought about Sarah being submissive to Abraham? What if she would have caused the scene? I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. How important was it for Abraham that he had a supportive wife? How important that she was submitting to him as the head, but also submitting to God? Sarah had to go through a lot. But Abraham was being faithful to God, and she respected that, and she went with him. And so Sarah is the example that is used. Again, called him Lord, a title of respect. For someone in a position of authority, in the marriage relationship, who is that one who's in, a, in, in, in charge? Who's the one who is the head of the home? According to God, it's the man. In Ephesians 5, and 23, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Even as Christ is said head of the church. I can't move on with this one without telling you a Brother Moser story real quick said one time he was studying this and he came home and asked his wife Dorothy and said, why don't you call me Lord? She said, if you'll act more like Abraham, maybe I will. So that's something for us to remember, man. Here Sarah was able to call him Lord. Even though they had ups and downs, went through a lot of things, she never lost that love and respect for Abraham. And that's a very special thing. And that's the example that Peter has given us here in this text. Let's let's look at our final verse this morning. We'll close out. We, We talked about How wives are to live. The expectation. We talked about the example from the Old Testament, but now the eternal importance. Everything up to this point has been to wives. Six verses, but now only one that's going to bring the husband back into picture. And I want to show you why that's important. Husbands, likewise, there's that word again. What's that force us to do? Go back in the overall context. Wives, you submit to your own husbands, but husbands, listen, you've got a responsibility too. You dwell with your wife according to knowledge, according to understanding. Look at the language that Peter's going to bring out. Giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. The word dwell, if you do a word study on dwell, you'll find it a lot in the New Testament, a lot. But here it's emphasized the only time this word is used is right here. It means to cohabit. It's a present active verb. It means to share living quarters. You continue to live together. Day-to-day activity as husband and wife. Husbands dwell. Continue to be with them. The NIV says husbands in the same way, be considerate as you live. That's the word dwell. With your wives and treat them with respect. Notice it says dwell with them with understanding. King James says dwell with them according to knowledge. What kind of knowledge or what kind of understanding? Understanding that your wife is the most precious thing this side of eternity to you. Even when children become involved, your wife comes first. And sometimes that's a, that's a hard lesson and sometimes all the focus goes to the children. What happens when the children leave? Now we don't know how to be husband and wife. you got to work on it. You've got to stay connected to the ups and the downs. And you've got to be close because that's the way that God designed it. So here you think about this this idea of dwelling with understanding. The word understanding it comes from the Greek word gnosis. We we think about the Gnostics there in 1 John the knowing ones. It literally means knowledge, the psychological result or perception, learning and reasoning. But here's the point. Often with the focus of applying that knowledge. Dwell with them according to the knowledge that I get from the word of God that my wife is to be honored. That my wife is precious to me. You remember how Paul used it? What did he compare it to? How precious is my wife to be to me? How precious is the church to Jesus Christ? That he shed his own blood for the church. That he died for his bride. So if I love my wife the way that Jesus loves the church, I'm not going to ridicule her in public. I'm not going to come home and treat her in a disrespectful way. I'm going to honor her. I'm going to lift her up. I'm going to elevate her every chance I get. That's what verse 7 is all about. Husbands, you dwell with your wives according to knowledge, according to understanding, and honor them to highly respect and revere. Same word in Romans 13 and verse 7. Give honor to whom honor is due. And God says, husbands, you, you owe that to your wife. You honor them. You build them up. You lift them up that's your that's your wife that's the one that you chose to live this life with and this is a very special context when Peter's bringing it out but then notice this as to the weaker vessel this does not mean they're weaker spiritually it does not mean they're weaker emotionally this is going back to how God created us I know that flies in the face of many in our world today but God made them male and female and there's a difference between a man and a woman and the way that God designed us is the man typically speaking, is going to be physically stronger than the wife. With that being said, men, we've got to step up. We've got responsibilities to do things that we're not going to ask our wife to do if we're physically able to do it. So give honor to them as the weaker vessel. Think about the word vessel. Think about something that's precious and costly. You're not going to let anything harm that vessel. You're not going to let anything come in and and break something apart. That's the word picture, and that's the idea of how we are to dwell with our wives continuing to think about this internal importance here's where it gets down to the spiritual application being heirs together heirs very important word in the New Testament I wanted us to do a dive into this the word for heirs here is actually fellow heirs again Galatians 3 26 and following if you put on Christ that you're being baptized into Christ that's how you become a Christian and then he says, we are no slave, no free, neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. The point is, you as a man obey the gospel, you as a woman obey the gospel, guess what? You're all one in Christ. You all receive all spiritual blessings that come with that. That's the point, point. and people have come and, and misconstrued that text and had all kinds of things come out. But that's the point, you're all saved the same way. You obey the same gospel, you receive the same blessings by obeying that same gospel. But this word for heirs, fellow heirs, is found only four times in the New Testament. And I want you to notice the emphasis of how powerful this word is. Romans 8, 17. Children of God. And if children, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. When's the last time you meditated on that? Joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs with the Son of God. That's the blessing you have of being a Christian. But it further emphasizes the, the connection, doesn't it, of being an heir together. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6, the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. So whether you're Jew, whether you're a Gentile, Romans 1.16, you obey the same gospel, you're added to the same body. So the Gentile is not going to get less than the Jew is the point, Romans one sixteen and 17. You both obey the gospel. You're both in Christ. You get everything that comes with it. Ephesians 1, 3. So the idea of heirs. And then in Hebrews 11 and verse 9. Abraham, by faith you dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. Notice dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So the word is strong because it's showing that strong connection. And so my goal as a husband is to help my wife get to heaven. And your goal as a wife is to help your husband get to heaven. Work together. Fellow heirs of the grace of life. If that's not your goal as a couple, to magnify God together in your marriage, then you've missed the point of marriage altogether. It's the point of building each other up, helping each other grow, and ultimately being able to stand before the Lord on the Day of Judgment because as much as I love my wife, I can't stand in her place on the Day of Judgment. I'm going to have to give an account for me, according to 2 Corinthians 5.10. But I want to make sure I'm doing everything in my power to lead her in the way where she can also hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Again, if that's not my goal, then then, then I'm, I'm missing it. I'm missing it. The grace of life, the outworking of grace in your life. Grace is the goodness, the kindness, and the love of God extended to you. And think about the grace of God in a godly marriage. Has God not extended His grace in a godly marriage when a marriage is the way that God designed it? That is such a a wonderful blessing from God. That's the kind of grace that we're talking about. But then notice this, that your prayers may not be hindered. The word hindered means obstructed to prevent the progress or accomplishment of something. James 5.16, godly behavior facilitates prayer. The prayer of a righteous man avails much. But ungodly behavior prevents prayer. Let me put it in in terms we can all kind of grasp this together. If things aren't right between me and my wife at home, then my prayer is not getting higher than the ceiling. That's the point. If things aren't right with my wife and I, it's going to be really hard for things to be right between my God and I. Dwell with them according to knowledge that your prayers are not hindered. So I can't go and and treat my wife in such a way and we're not on speaking terms and we're not doing this and doing that and then come to worship together and act like everything's fine. According to 1 Peter 3, 7, that's not the way that God designed it. Dwell with them according to knowledge. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Husbands, you dwell with them according to understanding. You're heirs together of the grace of life. And if you don't have things right at home, your prayers are going to be hindered and that's a scary thought isn't it that I'm going to the throne of God and it's closed off hey you can get things right with your spouse first before you come to me that's the 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 powerful statement that's made here at the end of verse 7 so let's close out with some thoughts and we'll extend the invitation of our Lord as we think about everything that we've studied just kinda putting this together God expects for husbands and wives to fulfill their duties to one another. Yes, you might be married to someone and and they're not a Christian. Or they were and they've not become unfaithful. You still have a duty to be a husband and wife. Because if you shirk that responsibility and you turn that cold shoulder, how are you ever going to win them to the Lord? But by your submission and by your respect, they're going to see something deeper. She respects me because she respects God. She's submitting to me because she's submitting to God. And over time, that can have a very positive effect on your spouse. God is to come first, and a godly marriage will exalt that truth. A godly marriage is built on the fact that Jesus comes first. A godly marriage is built on seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, And if it's not built on that foundation, when the wind and the waves come, the house that was built on the sand, the marriage that was built on the sand will go splat. Matthew 6, again. We can learn from the examples in Scripture of what a godly marriage is to look like. That's a great study, a great endeavor to go through and study these marriages, study in the Old Testament, like Sarah and how she was responding to Abraham, and think about the things that they went through and apply that to today. Again, if things aren't right at home, it makes it extremely difficult for things to be right with God. Let me say this this by a word of encouragement. Don't give up on your spouse. Don't give up on them. Keep coming. Keep being faithful to God. Keep reading your Bible. Keep your prayer life healthy. Because the worst thing you can do is to stop. Because once you do that, your spouse is going to see right through it. And it's going to get to the point where if it's not important to you, why should it be important to them? Why should they change anything? It's not that you beat them over the head with the Bible. It's not that you say all these different phrases and words and turn away from them. You continue to carry out your duty as a husband or as a wife, and you stay faithful to God. That's really what this sermon is about this morning. Your faithfulness to God speaks volumes, and it may help you to win over your spouse. So this morning, if you're here as a Christian, and your spouse is not with you, and you feel that pain every time you come here, or you feel the pain every time you go back home, I want to encourage you, don't give up and stay faithful. It may take years, and it may even take you being gone one day for them to realize the importance of living for God. You have a very powerful influence. You can influence your spouse in a way that nobody else in the world can use that influence for good and help them to see what they're missing and help them come to the Lord before it's too late. As we studied this morning, we understand that one cannot be saved apart from the Word of God. You must respond to what the Gospel has said and so it may be there's someone here this morning who's not a Christian. Maybe you're here with your spouse and you've been coming here a long time but you've never obeyed the Gospel. Heaven will rejoice And I promise you this, your spouse will rejoice if you make the right decision this morning and become a Christian. Do it for the right reason. But understand that would be incredible for your spouse. What an encouragement that would be. Why not do that? If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you're willing to repent of your sins, realize I'm done wrong, I need to change that, confess with your mouth, yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, and submit to him and be baptized into Christ and have all your sins washed away. Acts 2.38 and 22.16 And rise to walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 3 through 6 If you're not a Christian, this morning will be a great opportunity to respond to the gospel and become a Christian by doing what the Bible says to do. But it may be again that as we, we really come down to the pulse of this, your spouse isn't faithful and you've not treated them with the right respect. Repent of that. And remember what we studied this morning from 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Be able to have that godly example and that mentality and that lifestyle that can hopefully help them. But it may be that as a Christian, you need to repent because you've got sin in your life. This would be a great opportunity to do that too. Whatever the case may be, help us to all have the right heart, have the right mentality, and glorify God in what we say and do. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, won't you come as together we stand and as we sing?